0: Hello and welcome ladies and gentlemen to episode two of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Piotr Schulkus, and today I'm joined by Hajar Medh and Felix Walker to discuss the origins of the Middle East's kafala system, its role in and effect on societies, the impact of coronavirus, and what its future might look like. They're mainly from Asia, from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka.
1: The kafala system is modern-day slavery. There's no two ways about it. People think that they have a right to have a migrant domestic worker live in their homes
2: 24-7. If
1: there's no
2: kafala system, I think people, they they can treat us
1: equally.
0: Human Rights Watch has criticized uh, this system of sponsorship in Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries, which ties migrant workers to local sponsors. Of course, we had the capital, but it's without the help, many projects would never have seen the light of day. We're hoping that other countries will also follow suit and fully abolish Kafala, uh, because it's not in line with international standards. So before we start discussing the kafala system itself, I think it's very important to first get a definition of what it is and after that, get a history. So Felix, would you start by giving a definition, please?
1: Sure. So basically, the kafala system is a form of legal migration structure that exists in Gulf countries and in Lebanon and in Jordan. And it basically operates through a sponsor called kafil, who is a national of one of those countries, and a sponsored called maqful, which is the migrant worker that is coming to these countries for a job. The kafala system basically works by outsourcing the management and the control over the migrant labor from the state to the citizen himself, who is the employer, and who wields high amounts of control over uh, the person working for him. And it is important to remember that even though people believe that the kafala system is treated as a block with common problems and policies, there is diversity within the system itself as to the type of restrictions and their application. So for example, in the countries of the GCC, all workers, no matter where they're from, are subject to the restrictions of the kafala system, whilst in Arab states, such as Lebanon and Jordan, there exists a differentiation in the control exercised over migrant workers, and who works under this system. So in Lebanon, kafala regulates low skilled workers coming primarily from Asia and Africa, but not those coming from Syria and Egypt, for example. And in Jordan, the kafala system is only relevant to migrant workers recruited by nationals and not those working in
0: qualified industrial zones. And Harja, would you want to say something about history?
2: So there are quite a few theories as to where the kafala system came from. I think the most popular is that it started in the 1950s due to the oil rush. It does hold some truth to it. I think the more convincing theory is that the sponsorship system, or the kafala system, is a product of the British colonial era. In Bahrain, there was a particularly fruitful pearling industry, and during the summer high season, migrants who were primarily colonized peoples of the British Empire, so Indians, would come to Bahrain and work on these ships and contribute to the pearling industry and then leave. Originally, this was incredibly unregulated, and information surrounding this industry was very unclear but then there began a the process of formalization, which occurred simultaneously to the formalization of these countries, their borders, their legal institutions and their travel structures, which meant that in the thirties, for someone to become a diver on these ships, uh, they required to have an entry visa an exit visa, no objection certificate when they wanted to leave the country, all aspects of the kafala system that we see today. And I think what, really defined this sort of fledgling kafala system and allowed it to transition from fledgling kafala system to this full-blown kafala system that we have today was the 1945 oil discovery in Kuwait. Originally Kuwaitis attempted to circumvent British requirements by abolishing visa requirements for other Arabs, but it became immediately obvious that these Arabs imported, along with their families, progressive political ideas that posed challenges to ruling families in the Gulf. So, ideas such as Pan-Arabism, Masalism, Communism and Socialism. And I think it was during this period, 1960s especially, when this idea of almost a two-tier system came into play, Kuwait began to introduce greater benefits to its citizenry, and citizenship became something only given to those with one or two parents, meaning Only Kuwaiti citizens could sponsor workers, and so they had direct control over the migrant worker sector and industry, and I think this is what one could say was the beginning of the ethnocracy in the GCC and truly defined the way the Gulf would approach migration for the following years.
0: I think that hits the uh, importance of the Catholic system on on the head, because there's two things which create the governmental interest for the Catholic system. The first one is the fact that it gives the citizens of a country an, an inordinate amount of power, as they don't have that through democratic means. And the second one is, as you mentioned, Hajar, that it creates a very large body of apolitical workers. During the 60s, 70s, the Gulf did have a large number of Arab workers, but they would also bring their families. But when more migrants came from Southeast Asia, they, as you said, would often be single men, not bringing their families and not having any interest in spreading either Arab nationalist ideology or anything else in the region, making them the perfect worker in the Gulf states. You know, the same applies today with with workers from europe and america as well they are very little interest in regional politics and are therefore very stable people to have within the country
2: in reference to south asian migrants it's actually really important to understand that this migration isn't a new phenomena and migration from south asia to the persian gulf to the arabian peninsula has been occurring and has been documented as early as the 1820s and definitely earlier and i think for a lot of people It's assumed that this is a very new development that actually has been going on for a really long time. These communities have a very long-standing relationship with communities in the Gulf.
0: That brings us into another question, which is why these people from South Asia and Southeast Asia end up traveling to the Gulf. Would you if you want to answer that question on why that is the case?
2: The reason why South Asian workers migrate to the gulf primarily is because the salary that they receive has a greater purchasing power in their respective countries and as often is the case with a lot of these construction workers accommodation is provided for them and so they're able to send home the majority of their salaries as remittances and like for example bangladesh receives over 15 billion dollars a year in remittances and so this makes up a very important part of the country's economy But I think the most important thing here is understanding that there is a demand for these migrant workers that no matter when they go, they there will be work for them because of how much the Gulf now relies on construction work to preserve its economic revenue.
0: That does also raise one of the questions though, because they might want to come to the Middle East, but the way they come to the Middle East is often not quite as easy or straightforward as portrayed. Because there's often a large problem with, for example, debt bondage or false advertising, which has very serious consequences for their lives once they come into the Middle East.
2: <laughs> There's a lot of agencies that falsely advertise positions in the UAE, and the GCC in general, and then when the workers arrive in the country, they're actually their passports are confiscated and then they're forced into labour that is a lot more tedious and a lot more strenuous than was previously advertised. And I think that's really common and is akin to essentially human trafficking and modern slave labour.
1: And then once they arrive, they face uh, various forms of wage abuses, such as being underpaid or not even being paid, unfair business practices, such as uh, the paid when paid clause, which basically allow subcontractors that have not been paid to delay payments to the workers. They also face some of the employers withhold the workers' ATM cards. Also, like you mentioned, uh, Piotr, previously, they're, they're victims of deceptive recruitment practices in both the sending and the receiving countries with illegal visa traders. And it does become a form of of human trafficking. In Qatar, for example, um, workers have to pay from from $700 to $2,600 to secure jobs to be able to go to Qatar as they face wage abuses upon their arrivals. um, Being able to first pay that back and then send remittances home is extremely difficult. And very often, they're not even able to, to actually come out of the country having earned any money in the end.
0: Yeah, but just to give the listeners some context, because you say they may have to pay up to $2,000 to get into the country. Do you know roughly how much they earn a week or a month when they're there? I guess it varies depending on the job because we have to also remember that
1: um, not just low-skilled or low-income workers are affected. There's also higher-income professional expatriate workers that are also affected. And also on top of that, due to wage abuses, it's difficult to know exactly what they're being paid and the the oversight you know international institutions or governments have on being able to know what workers are being paid is also very limited, especially for domestic workers, because being able to regulate what's happening inside the home of of an employer who wields very high levels of power is extremely difficult.
2: According to Americans for Democracy and Human Rights in Bahrain, the average monthly salary for a migrant domestic worker is between $150 to $200. And as is often the case, um, deductions may be made for accommodation, for food, so they don't always receive the total sum.
0: So in the very best case scenario, they'd have to work for up to 10 months to pay off the debt they have incurred to their employer. And after that, they'd finally start earning money. That's not ideal. Now, when it comes to, for example, living conditions, it's also a very well publicized problem that the migrants from Southeast Asia, despite building all the buildings in which the rich individuals in the Gulf live, They don't get to live in them themselves and often find themselves in very crammed labor camps. And this is obviously a disaster for coronavirus, but we'll get back to that later in the episode. But also, especially in Lebanon and the maids in the Gulf, they live together with the families, and that has also become a very large problem.
2: So, 96% of Emirati families are believed to have a domestic worker in their household. And because of this development, It's become very common for homes and houses to have servants' quarters where the domestic workers can live, apart from the family. But a major problem within this dynamic is that the worker is always accessible. They're always accessible to the family, meaning that the family can easily overwork them, can easily demand of them a greater time commitment and a greater energy commitment than is acceptable for these workers
1: yeah and, and also one of the issues that workers faced as domestic workers they weren't even allowed to leave the house without permission and many employers wouldn't even give the permission uh, in in the UAE, for example when the kafala system was being debated a couple years ago some ministers were saying that they shouldn't be allowed out of the house because that could increase the chances of them you know getting into relationships and then coming back pregnant that would cause an issue for the employer because therefore they would have to to change migrant worker
2: I think it's definitely very easy to underestimate the role of the domestic worker in the domestic environment. But according to recent studies, domestic workers in the Emirates especially, perform over 80% of parental responsibilities, meaning that their role in the family is essential. And they've been absorbed into the nuclear unit or into the Gulf's nuclear unit. And as the Gulf population begins to age, these domestic workers become even more useful and even more essential as carers and as caregivers to these older communities.
1: Typically, countries that apply the Kafala system are, are treated as a block with common problems and policies. but however, destination countries have diversity in the Kafala system as to the type of, of restrictions and their application. For example, in the GCC, all workers are subject to the restrictions of the kafala system. in in Arab states, uh, such as Lebanon or Jordan, there exists differentiation in the control exercised over migrant workers. So for example, in Lebanon, the kafala regulates low-skilled workers coming primarily from Asia uh, and Africa, but not those coming from Syria or other uh, Arab countries. Also, it depends in what areas you're working in 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 the country also. Like for example, in Jordan, the kafala system is only relevant to migrant workers recruited by nationals and not those working in qualified industrial zones.
2: I think the application of the Kafala system to all non-nationals in the GCC really reinforces the privileges that citizenship in the GCC affords to its communities. And I think that's a really interesting thing to comment on because, in my opinion, that's the whole point of the Kafala system. It is to ensure that this two-tier or this pyramid hierarchy remains intact and it isn't threatened by this massive influx of migrant workers at any point.
0: However, the flip side of that is that the culture of these Qataris or Emiratis or Saudis is, in their own eyes, distinctly under threat. They live in their own countries as minorities, all six of the GCC states and the top 20 when it comes to how many of their inhabitants are uh, migrants. And the consequence of this is also that the whole city or the whole country, in some cases, gets aimed at catering to foreign consumers. There are not enough Qataris in Qatar to fill all the houses which have been built, nor are enough Emiratis in the Emirates to fill all the houses or the jobs which have been created. You have this massive pyramid scheme where the only way the economy can function is by catering to millions, literally, of migrants who come there, who work there, who consume there, but who never actually put down roots in those countries, because as has been discussed earlier, it's almost impossible to get a citizenship in these countries. And in addition to that, you have the environmental consequence of this. And Qatar is one of the countries which is the most exposed to climate change in the world, but nothing in their policies or in their behaviour gives any indication that it is a primary threat to them at the moment because the whole economy is based on short-termism and consumption. And that is going to turn out to be a very major problem for them in the future.
2: I think the anxiety about this sort of impending demographic time bomb is very, very tangible in quite a few of these countries, especially in the GCC. So there, there have been quite a few state-led drives to... Increase the number of their citizens employed in public and private sectors. And it's called, funny names, Qatarization, Emiratization, and Saudiization, and also Omaniization. But essentially, they're creating a legal compulsion for companies and NGOs to hire UAE nationals as a priority rather than equally evaluating all applications. And I think that's particularly interesting because currently the public sector for example, in Saudi and in the UAE, is dominated by nationals. But the reality is there's not enough jobs for the number of nationals that are out there. So now the governments have turned to apply pressure to private companies and ensure that the private sector props up the national economy as much as the pri- the public sector does.
0: There are two flip sides that. So the first one is for people in the Emirates and Qatar, it's an advantage working for the government because it's one of the few sectors where they actually are surrounded by people who speak Arabic. So for them, it is still a sector within which they can express their own culture. The other problem with the Qatarization or Saudization or Emiratization policies is that many international companies see the requirements of having certain GCC nationals within the countries as a cost of doing business rather than something which they're doing out of the good of their hearts.
2: I think that's really poignant because these countries are very aware of how much their private sectors are dominated by foreign. Non nationals. So, for example, in 2008, Saudi attempted to reduce the number of work visas to restrict job competition. And UAE labor law states that employment is the right of UAE nationals, but is not the right of UAE non nationals. And employees are under a duty to consider UAE nationals before employing a foreign national. On the flip side, termination of employment of UAE nationals is much, much more difficult. You aren't allowed to terminate a UAE national in order to hire a non UAE national. And if that is found to be the case, you can be fined over 20,000 Emirati Marathi dirhams.
1: Is there high levels of, of xenophobia? There, well, it's it's growing. Is it, and is it towards the low-skilled or the higher-skilled? Probably towards the higher-skilled. I, like I think it
0: right? goes both ways. I think because the lower-skilled workers are by far the more numerous in those countries, yeah. because I know, for example, in the UAE, Indians are the largest ethnic group in in the country. There's a lot of distrust to a certain extent towards them about who they are and the, the feeling that they are encroaching upon the culture of the Emiratis. But as you say, there's also definitely xenophobia towards the higher skilled migrant laborers because... They are the ones with whom the citizens have to compete for jobs and because of that they they are often very unhappy about the situation which they're in because they feel it's their national right as haja mentioned to have a job an implication is also to have a nice prestigious well-regarded job but often companies are more interested in having the higher performing nationals from western countries to to do those there are some good examples of people within the gcc becoming fairly xenophobic there was a well-known kuwaiti actress who had said that migrants should be expelled into the desert because of them taking up too much space even now the term used for a large number of migrants is bengali like it doesn't matter if you're from a country which isn't india you're still referred to as a bengali so i think very many of of the citizens in those countries are quite sick of the situation in which they find themselves on the other hand the whole economic system is based on a situation where they are incredibly reliant on foreign laborers. So I don't see that having a, a happy ending.
1: That's very true. I mean, the, the fact that they do have a lot of international pressure to change their system, but despite many reforms that they claim to be uh, you know, putting in place, nothing much is being changed. And that's just a testament to the fact that they still very much need this system to survive because their population is just too small and also not willing to do many of the jobs that the the migrant workers are doing.
2: I think essentially the UAE as a very, very luxury welfare state has set itself up for a really unsustainable future path. So in the sense that uh, there's a strong sense of country loyalty because of how well the country treats its citizens, which is great for the citizens, they get to enjoy tax free income, free high quality healthcare, subsidized fuel, free higher education. Emiratis get $19,000 when they marry an Emirati woman. So there's lots of benefits here, but it's just entirely unsustainable, especially considering how much the Emirati community actually spends in the uae so the revenue production is greater amongst non-nationals whereas nationals don't actually spend that much and so it's almost like the uae is rewarding its citizens purely for their ethnic background as opposed to um, incentivizing them to create revenue and the way they're try- trying to find a way around that is by investing in the permanent residency scheme which gives permanent residency to investors researchers entrepreneurs and outstanding students because the UAE is running out of oil and now has to look for alternative ways to make money construction is the most lucrative sector at the moment and so what they've done is they've changed the legislation to allow non-nationals to own land meaning the construction sector retains its lucrative nature but also meaning that non-nationals are able to find greater stability in the country. And I think that's the main source of anxiety for the community, is that now these non-nationals have superseded the need to rely on sponsors and and on kafils to act as their way into the community. They actually have their own right to residency and they have their own ability to establish stability and their own lives in the country. And I think that's where the anxiety sort of his kickstarted not necessarily the, the discrepancy in numbers.
1: You, like you said, Hajar, not only did they get their, their nationals used to a standard of life and a standard of treatment that is very high and very hard to sustain, but they also provided that to high-income expatriate workers as well. And now with their, their lack of attractiveness due to the fact that now there is some income tax that's imposed and the fact that uh, people are more and more aware of the downsides of the kafala system even as a high-income expatriate worker they are offering those kinds of guarantees such as like being able to get property like Hajra mentioned
2: Yeah, and I also think they're very aware of how unsustainable this reality is. So Anwar Gergersh said to the Beirut Institute in June they need to assess the sustainability of the kafala system and of their approach to migrant workers as a whole. And the academic Scott Livermore predicts that there will be an expat exodus once travel restrictions are eased in the Gulf because of how unsustainable basically their society makeup is.
0: Would that then be an exodus of workers, like the low-skilled laborers or the high-skilled laborers, do you think?
2: I think it will primarily be an exodus of the higher-skilled laborers, but also the low-skilled laborers because they were essentially abandoned both by their own governments and by the Gulf governments. Um, So I think there were a few examples of India sending Navy ships to Dubai to collect their citizens in coronavirus pandemic, Um, No direct relief was offered to migrants despite financial support being received by citizens in the UAE. And I just think it's not sustainable to maintain this sort of two-tier social system. And I think people are very aware of that.
0: But that sustainability does go two ways because for a number of these countries in Southeast Asia, the remittances which they receive from their citizens which work in the Gulf are incredibly important. The most glaring example is Nepal, where something like 20% 20% of their GDP is based on remittances because of workers they have in the Gulf. But even for countries like India, it's still a very substantial amount of their gross national product. So it's also, I guess, in their best interest to keep the system alive as long as possible.
1: And also, these GCC countries wield high amounts of power in the sending countries and have huge investments in these sending countries such as Saudi investment schemes in Pakistan and in India. For example, when Pakistan criticised the Saudis' lack of support for the Kashmiris, I mean, I know this is not related to the Kafala system, it just comes to show that Pakistan criticised the Saudis for their lack of support for the the fellow Muslim Kashmiris in in that crisis. Saudi Arabia threatened to withdraw their funds, and then Pakistan completely cancelled and took back any comments that they had made towards Saudi Arabia.
2: But that's not to say that other countries haven't attempted to oppose the Gulf countries for their treatment of migrant workers, namely the Philippines. Duterte enacted a temporary ban on sending Filipino workers to Kuwait, but this isn't the first time that governments have been angry and have expressed their rage in a very practical manner at the Gulf or at the Arab states for their treatment of migrant workers.
0: There's also been a number of cases where the European Union or other countries around the world have put a lot of pressure on both the GCC countries and Lebanon, to stop working on their kafala system?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially with the COVID and what that brought in terms of mistreatment of migrant workers and that how that was brought to the forefront. You have lots of actors that are opposed and outspoken against the kafala system, such as the European Union. Within the European Parliament, you have subcommittees on, on human rights or delegations for the relations with the Arab Peninsula on the dismantling of the Kafala system, lots of international organizations such as the International Labour Association, the International Trade Union Confederation, the International Organization of Employers, who all put pressure on uh, countries that apply the Kafala system, especially when it comes to these, these GCC countries organizing international events, like the World Cup that's being organized in, in Qatar, or American or, or Western universities having campuses in these countries, or, or museums that's when these outside actors are paying more attention to what's happening in those countries
0: have there been any indications of them being successful because the way Qatar treats its migrant workers is, is no secret and now there's some change towards improving the situation but even then it's full of holes
1: it, it's true um i mean because of that international pressure there has been some some reforms but they have been limited reforms and in the end, no real change has been brought. These reforms have, have happened in maybe nearly all the GCC countries in the past couple of years. So like you said, Qatar in 2015, they had implemented a wage protection system, basically a, a wage monitoring system, 2017, they had a labor dispute resolution committee put in place, um, an insurance fund for workers. And then in 2020, they basically signed this law, which in effect, dismantles the kafala system because it removes the requirement for migrant workers to obtain their employer's permission to freely switch employers. It removes the requirement for workers to obtain permission from the employer to leave the country and basically adopts a non-discriminatory minimum wage for migrant workers and ensures that they have a day off every week and other things like this. But Despite these changes, it is important to remember that there is extremely slow implementation times for these laws or bills that are passed. It can take years for them to be implemented. Also, there's a lack of resources for these programs from the government itself because it doesn't really care and doesn't really want to change the system. But also, for example, if workers are given the opportunity to complain, they still won't necessarily complain if they are faced with issues, because it takes a long time, it takes resources, which they do not have, and they're also scared of retaliation. Also, we have to remember that there's gaps in in the oversight capacity, like how are you able to, to have labor inspections within someone's house? That's extremely difficult to put in place. And then in the end, employers still regain massive amounts of control over the migrant workers. So despite these changes, in the end, in Qatar, for example, even despite these changes around 60 employers and companies were still identified as abusing workers.
0: I just wanted to add something to that before we go on to the next question. And the first is I should say that enforcement is probably the biggest question and problem related to this because they can implement those rules. But if there's no political desire to actually go through with them, it will have very little impact. And even the new Qatari rules, which were only introduced at the end of um, August 2020, they promise a thousand Qatari real monthly minimum wage plus another additional up to 800 reals for food and accommodation. But even with all of that, these people only still earn like two or three British pounds an hour, which is a pittance.
2: I think it's also important to note that fundamentally a lot of the GCC operates on employer-friendly legislation. And so they prioritize the employer in legal situations. And I think for the kafala system to entirely be done away with, and to 100% improve the working conditions of employees, be they domestic migrant workers or construction workers, or even white collar workers, the entire legal system requires an overhaul and requires um, a transition into a more employee friendly legislation. So for example, there are some cases where there's an absence of a minimum salary for expats. Um, Employers can sort of unilaterally terminate the contract, Which is quite interesting because that doesn't exist for nationals. Nationals do have a minimum salary. It's really hard to terminate the contracts of UAE nationals. In some cases, trade unions are also banned. It's not just the kafala system that is glaringly flawed. It's actually a lot of the Gulf's labour law, a lot of the Gulf's labour legislation that stands in the way of progression, that stands in the way of employees being able to gain some sort of equal standing in the community or in the
0: employer's eyes. This might be a very difficult question, but do you think there's any room for improvement there or any realistic hope for improvement in those situations?
2: Especially in the UAE, there's too much of a reliance on these migration and labour systems to manage the demographic imbalance. I think what ensures that foreign workers don't gain political or communal strength and influence is their relationship of sponsorship to nationals and i think by ensuring the economic presence of nationals and by tying the migration status of non-nationals to nationals it ensures that even the world of work revolves around nationals even the world of work revolves around their relation to the gulf state the, the gulf ethnocracy so i think it's too much of a risk for the gulf to get rid of the Kafala system or to get rid of any sort of similar iterations of this Kafala system because it would require a massive admission of vulnerability and a massive sort of transition into vulnerability. And I don't think that is beneficial to the Gulf in any way, shape or form.
0: Felix, do you have anything to add?
1: Yeah. And uh, due to the fact that it's so difficult to change things within these countries, some uh, NGOs like the Freedom Fund, for example, Uh, are helping more local NGOs on the ground in sending countries, like in Ethiopia. And these NGOs are basically providing support and training to individuals that are planning to go work abroad by giving them information and and educating them about what to expect and how to react if they are faced with difficult situations of abuse, uh, whether that's physical or whether that's wage abuse, and teach them more about what options they have, despite them being very limited, if they do want to get out or improve their situation.
2: I think it's also really important to remember that it's not only a lack of awareness of the legal frameworks that are in place in the host countries, but it's also a massive language barrier. In the case of most migrant workers, they don't speak Arabic. That's a massive barrier because Arabic is the language of the bureaucracy or is the bureaucratic language and so incapability of speaking Arabic immediately prevents you from being able to access appropriate legal measures. And also legal systems are very, very naturally inclined to prefer and prioritise their own nationals in almost every situation. At times it is actually futile to go and look for support from the legal frameworks that are in place because they just do not work in the favour of the non-UAE or non-Gulf nationals.
1: Yeah, absolutely. On top of that, as they don't actually have any substantial political rights, it's illegal for them basically to unionize and to get together. And even if they want to get together, there's so many cultural differences among the migrant population, with all different languages, religions, and nationalities, that it's extremely difficult for them to organize together. And they basically find themselves individually faced against the state and that legal system, which therefore becomes impossible. And even if they do complain, a lot of the time they're deported before they even have the time to finish the the legal proceedings.
2: I think comprehending um, the state of migration in the UAE requires a comprehension of how the system works in place to ensure the perpetual isolation of each community. The Gulf profits or the GCC profits and benefits from the acculturation of these communities by ensuring that they assimilate into their own community and they're not allowed to participate and continue to practice their own cultural norms. They ensure that they are isolated in more ways than one and isolated from other potential sources
0: of support.
1: Like you were saying, Hajar, they're working in construction, for example, they're confined to camps. And that's, that situation has been exacerbated by the whole COVID situation. In Kuwait, you know, they imposed a lockdown on two major labor districts and they basically barricaded the area with barbed wire and just left them there to die because among them, there was no any social distancing whatsoever. Um, and they were living in unlivable conditions before.
0: I think that hits the nail on the head, and a big problem is that the migrant laborers have to resist against the whole the economic, the political, and the social interests of a state which has near total control over them. And that gives them very little recourse to do basically anything. Though I would like to,
1: to mention, even if they are basically faced with, with the whole system against them. And they're made to, to fight it individually, there has been cases of strikes and protests in Kuwait, for example, there was uh, they, they stormed into the Ministry of Social Affairs and labor, and there was even riots at the deportation camp. It's not like the the migrant workers are, are basically standing idle as well. They have tried to fight back and, and usually nothing happens from that, and actually it goes against them. but there are cases of them trying to, to fight back. sorry I minimized my thing
0: I couldn't find this again. Um... Mm. Uh, another thing i wanted to raise is the importance of major events to shine light on the kafala system because especially thanks to coronavirus there have been some quite well-known moments of the situation of migrant laborers in lebanon and that gives the impression that major events or big moments are very important progression of migrant labor rights in the middle east
1: absolutely piotr when it's international event that's being organized in these countries or big Western companies that are working in these countries or uh, videos or incidents of of migrant workers being abused and then spread around the world, that's the only time when it seemed that GCC countries or countries that have the Kapala system actually act, at least seem like they're going to do something about it. And it's actually, if you look at the dates of laws or bills that they pass in the aim of basically improving the system for migrant workers, you can see that the dates usually match up to events that happened at the same time. And like you said, with the the World Cup in Qatar that's being organized, that's when all these international organizations and the European Union started looking into how workers were being treated when building the stadiums, building the hotels. And that's when Qatar felt the pressure
0: to finally uh, make some changes. And Do either of you two think that this has a lot to do with how these countries want to brand themselves? Because A big part of their growth the last 10 or 15 years has been a desire to brand themselves as very modern, very hip, very appealing places in order to appeal as many foreign workers, especially from the West, as possible. And with the war in Yemen, which we'll eventually discuss on this podcast, and the way they treat labor laws, it it clashes very strongly with how they want to be portrayed to the West. And you guys think the impact of those very major PR disasters are the primary reasons they will make any improvements.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Proof of that is the fact that they actually make changes when there's a scandal and um, um, i
2: disagree. sorry, I just don't think that there's any longevity to or any authenticity in the
1: Because when I when I say that they they're they're implementing these changes, I don't actually mean that there's real change behind them. Uh, it is often the case a PR stunt when there is these international events or when there is a scandal these countries yes act upon it and we will pass a bill or a law that stipulates that you know things are going to be changed for migrant workers and we're going to treat them better. But like we said earlier in this podcast, real change doesn't actually happen. Implemented, yeah. Implementation doesn't happen. There's not enough resources to make it happen because there's no will to make it happen. And because these countries are completely dependent on this system and the development of these countries are in, is intrinsically connected to the kafala system. And without the kafala system, Kuwait Qatar the UAE
0: wouldn't be where they're at today do you have anything to add Hajar?
2: Nope, I absolutely agree
0: <laughs> well excellent let's move on to
2: oh just a quick addition though um I yes. think it's quite interesting that you mentioned the Qatar scandal um I think what's also increased the the presence or the awareness of human rights abuses and scandals in the GCC is definitely the presence of British and American campuses in the region. So um, I remember last year in 2019, like like a university paper published a request for the accountability of Cornell and their involvement and engagement with migrant workers and how they sort of employ these communities and almost certainly don't pay them well and aren't holding themselves to the standards that they are being held in to in america can these institutions actually exist in this region without depending almost entirely on migrant labor be it in the construction aspect be it in the maintenance aspect be it even in a domestic sense do they have maids in their houses do they have drivers there's so much i think to consider and there's so much that actually british and american and european nationals are complicit in so i think it's very optimistic or naive to say this is exclusively a GCC problem. A lot of the non-nationals who come from Britain, who come from America, who come from Europe, thrive in that system, make a lot of money, enjoy the life of luxury and servitude that they finally have access to. And I think in reality, they're very unwilling to pass up on an opportunity of extremely discounted labor in every sense of the word.
0: Should then one way to improve the situation of migrant laborers in the gulf and in lebanon then be to raise awareness in europe about the situation because at the moment it feels very much like a fringe part of advocacy still
2: i think it's very presumptuous to believe that the way these issues will be resolved is through european pressure i think yeah. the reality is the pressure needs to come from within the countries themselves as in the case of lebanon Uh, post-economic collapse, post-explosion, post-government resignation, post-everything that's happened in this past year. The Lebanese community themselves are aware of how unsustainable and how unethical and how unkind the kafala system is. And it's them who are pushing for the change, and it's them who are succeeding in ensuring that these communities get the support and the financial aid that they deserve.
1: I completely agree that if these Western institutions organizations and companies are complicit uh, in, in in this system and its uh, survival. How can we expect them to actually fight against it at the same time? I find that quite hypocritical. And they do fight against it, um, at least officially, You know, with the International Labour Organization putting pressure on FIFA to make sure that the stadiums in Qatar are not built by uh, forced labor. But then again, these are usually just recommendations. The government of Qatar really Complies with them as as much as it
0: wants. Companies can act well; they, they can say they're doing the right things, but there's very little genuine motivation for them to actually put the money where their mouth is. You know, we can criticize
1: all we want, but we're also perpetrators of of uh, unfair, you know, uh,
0: migration systems. We have major beneficiaries of it as well. the The final question I wanted to ask was the impact of coronavirus because. For many people, one of the first things they heard about the kafala system was when there were some viral moments on Twitter, when a BBC journalist recorded African migrants had been left at the consulates and had no way to go home because their passports had been removed. And equally so, coronavirus has hit much harder camps in which the laborers find themselves throughout the Gulf. And because of that, coronavirus has underlined the difficulties within the societies and also with the related oil price crash thanks to coronavirus it has shown how unsustainable the whole situation is. And because of that, I wanted to ask you guys as uh, perspective of what impact you think coronavirus has had and especially if it's going to have a lasting impact and if that impact is going to be for the better.
2: I think given the loss of income for so many communities during this coronavirus period, it's almost inevitable that the, the glaring fallacies of the Kaferla system will be be made even more obvious, in that these migrant worker communities will face this burden of not being able to send home money, their remittances be dramatically decreased. Maybe you don't see the impact as immediately in the domestic sector, because the family still resides with the domestic worker, but I think you definitely do see it in the construction um, sector because construction dries up, work dries up, pay dries up. There's kind of no other alternative but potentially returning home. Something which was very, very difficult to do given the cost of returning home and how difficult it was to renew visas during that period and therefore get home.
0: And to add to that, even the ones who are not allowed to return home for whatever reasons, they're also in a very unfortunate limbo situation. There was a report of a number of people who were stuck in their buildings, in their labor camps. And while they wouldn't be deported right away, they would also not be paid, which is problematic for them, but even more so for the family who relies on their remittances. Just to go back to your, your initial question about
1: is this going to have an impact for the better, I, I'm, I'm viewing COVID and the issues that that's bringing to the migrant population in those countries as just another crisis that's going to be viewed by the rest of the world. And then the rest of the world is going to put pressure on these countries to do something about it. And that's why we've seen some, some, some new laws or, or promises in Lebanon and Qatar or in Kuwait about how they're going to start treating them better uh, during these COVID times. But then again, it just comes back to the original problem. Are these just empty words or is actual change going to be brought? And um, how is that going to be implemented once again?
2: I also think it's too little, too late. Uh, this sort of two-tier system that exists in GCC has cemented itself over 40, 50, 60 years of the Kefela system being in place. I don't think you can actually circumvent the lasting impacts of the system, be that the racism that it's engendered, be that the colorism that it's encouraged in the communities. I just think that the, the impacts of having the system so central to the structure of the community and to the structure of the migration policy means that there are there's a lot more that the gcc needs to deal with it's not just something that can be immediately reversed in the process in the space of a few years
0: no i think that's exactly right and i think it's also a good point and simply saying that it's such a fundamental system and how these countries economies work and their populations are in many cases so small that they cannot function economically without a large number of foreign workers, both high-skilled ones and low-skilled ones. And a big problem, which is going to remain in the region, is how to solve it. And a big problem for people who are interested in the region like us is how we can raise awareness and make the whole situation a bit more equitable and a bit less exploitable. Because at the moment it is, as we said in the beginning, it is, in effect, human trafficking and modern slavery. And that's a very unfortunate situation to be in in 2020. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Join us next time while we're joined by three amazing guests to discuss female entrepreneurship in the Middle East. Almanac is a student-run initiative from the Middle East Centre at the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed within the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University of Oxford or the Middle East Centre. It's edited and hosted by myself, Piotr Schokers, with invaluable and inspiring support from... Lily Sullivan. Felix Walker.
1: Michael Mimari.
2: Hajar Madah.
1: Max Randall.
2: Frederica Brookhoven. Iman Farah. Rose Judson.